Welcome to episode 15 of Battle Rhythm, the Canadian podcast telling you what you need to know about defense and security. My co-host, Stephanie Lanlacki, will be joining me in a couple minutes. Uh, first, on our episode, we're going to talk about our New Year's resolutions for ourselves and for the Canadian Armed Forces. We'll then dive into the issue of the, uh, the events in Iraq and Iran and the role of Canada and of NATO in, in that matter. And then we'll discuss some of the announcements, some of the activities that the CDSN is be engaging in over the next couple of months. And then we'll have our Emerging Scholar interview with Rachel Schmidt. And our feature interview is with Irina Goldenberg. She's the co-director of the CDSN working on personnel issues with Stephanie, and she is the acting director of research, operational, and organizational dynamics for the Director General Military Personnel Research and Analysis of the Canadian Department of National Defense. My peeve will be on the media coverage of the recent events. Thank you very much. Stephanie, Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Steve. Are you all rested and ready for the new term? Uh, I think I am. I got to spend some time traveling to see in-laws, but I spent the last week back in in Ottawa resting and doing a little bit of work. How about you? Pretty much the same. I visited friends and family in Montreal for a week, and then I've been back trying to get stuff in order to be back in the classroom. My first class was yesterday, a three-hour seminar on international relations. What a hip topic these days. The students eager to go? I don't know if the students were eager to go, (laughs) uh, but it it was definitely a good group. It's nice to be in a smaller classroom after teaching large undergraduate classes, which I enjoy as well. Being in a field course, uh, which means a really intensive look at international relations with a group of 15 students or less is a real privilege. So I'm really happy to be rereading the classics and paying attention to how the field has evolved in the last 15 years. At the same time, it's a little unsettling because it's hard not to make so many parallels between that literature and what's going on. You know, you read the, the hashtags like France Ferdinand and World War <laughs> and uh, the, the classics take on a new, a new color. Yeah, I know the feeling. I'm teaching civil military relations and while we're watching what's going on with discussions about whether American military units will follow the president's orders on engaging in war crimes, we had a good discussion yesterday a little bit about obedience and, and the limits of, of what officers and soldiers should do when they're asked to do things that are dumb, which is one thing, or uh, illegal, which is another thing entirely. So it's nice to see that our classes are relevant, I guess. Here you're referring to Trump's threat to bomb Iran's cultural sites. That's right. Uh, we're going to get to that in a couple minutes, but I, I guess we'll, let's let's continue with the New Year's resolutions first. Do you have any resolutions for 2020? Yes. I mean, we've talked about resolutions a lot, even in, in September, because that's when academics tend to make their own resolutions. But for 2020, I had a little look at my bedside table and I see the non-academic books accumulating. And <laughs> I have a tendency to uh, have a level of ambition of non-academic reading that is beyond my actual capacity. So I will try to improve my non-academic reading pace so that I don't just read work-related books. So that's my 2020 resolution. What about you? 
mine is the opposite. I've been reading uh, enough fiction. I, I need to go back and, and catch up on, on the, the poli-sci stuff, the international relations stuff. I've designed my syllabus dangerously uh, this semester to force me to read stuff that I've been meaning to read. Uh, so one, my key resolution is to try to catch up in all the stuff that I've, I've, I've let go in terms of the readings. Is your resolution for the Canadian military to do more reading this year, or, do, or there's other things that you want them to, to resolve to do this year? <laughs> I think more reading is, is a good resolution for anyone. <laughs> but for the Canadian Armed Forces, maybe trying to keep their two and three-star generals in their jobs for longer than 10 months. <laughs> there has been a lot of shuffling in the past year, so maybe some steady leadership for the service branches, CJOC and the BCDS would be good. I don't know. What do you think? Well, the challenge with that is that, as I've teased uh, General Vance before, he's been in that position a long time, and, and I, I would think that 2020 is the year that he moves on, which means that there will be some shuffling to to in the background uh, to fill in the holes after they find a new CDS. But mm-hmm. I think keep on keeping on is, is really the thing. Uh, keep your And now, thanks to Iraq, uh, keep your heads down. So why don't we move on to that? One of the challenges with Trump launching this airstrike against Soleimani is that we have Canadians in harm's way in, in Iraq. You've been there. Uh, you've been to some of these bases. Uh, what are your thoughts on the, the security situation facing the Canadian forces and what are they likely to do? Mm-hmm. Well, when I was there in April, things were, were fairly quiet. And I remember in, in Baghdad, in the green zone, there was some discussion to bringing down the T-walls that were making the, the green zone secure. Mm-hmm. And uh, that eventually came to fruition. Those those two walls came down and then they eventually came back up with the protests. The protests just kept on escalating and spreading beyond Baghdad. And so this, the security situation had changed a lot since my visit in the spring already, even leaving aside this whole escalating tension between the U.S. Mm-hmm. and Iran. Now, I think it was wise to suspend the training activities of the the NATO mission in Iraq, making sure that the security and safety of NATO personnel is the the number one priority at this time. So I think you'll you'll see people staying uh, on base. There are three locations, Baghdad, Tajin, Bismaya, and and not much will be happening. I think what's interesting, though, is that in addition to the, the training activities, there is also the advisory function that the NATO mission plays. Mm-hmm. And on this side, the relationships that have been cultivated between the NATO mission and the Ministry of Defense within Iraq might prove actually quite helpful now, just in terms of managing the uncertainty mm-hmm. uh, in the coming days and weeks. Uh, so, so I think that side of the mission will still be active because it's primarily advisory, while the training uh, activities would be uh, suspended for, for security and safety reasons. But that's only the NATO part of the equation. There's also the Canadian forces operating under the banner of armed impact, but with the U.S. global coalition to defeat ISIS. Uh, And so it's always important to keep that distinction in mind when we talk about Canadian forces in Iraq, because there's two different umbrellas. The thing is that with Iran having a lot of different cards to play in the region, and with them having a time horizon that's not immediate, that is, that they can play this out for time, it's hard to imagine that there'll be a safe and secure environment or a relatively safe and secure environment anytime in the near future for this training to take place. It's on ice now, but I, I don't know how soon that the Canadian forces and the NATO forces will feel comfortable moving around Iraq or be or bringing in Iraqis into the training 
efforts. One of the things that's been that Canada has been really good at has been avoiding the so-called green on blue attacks where the trainees end up shooting the trainers. We saw a lot of that in Afghanistan by Afghans against other parts, other countries doing training. It didn't really happen much to Canada, but I can't imagine, I can easily imagine, sorry, I can easily imagine that in Iraq that, that the threat of that is much higher now than it was two weeks ago. And so I'm wondering whether this training mission can continue at all uh, given the changes on the ground in, in Iraq and in Iran these days. Well, and also the political situation just between the Iraqi government and the United States government. So the Iraqi parliament has decided in favor of kicking out U.S. forces from Iraq and Washington has sent really mixed messages since that happened. You know, what would be the timeline of that withdrawal? Mm. Will the United States comply with that withdrawal request? How long will that uh, take? Uh, given that uh, there will be an election in Iraq uh, eventually to replace the, the current prime minister who resigned earlier, uh, well, I guess last year. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so if there is no more invitation on the part of the Iraqi government for U.S. forces to be there, it's hard to see how international forces can stay, whether they're part of the U.S. global co- coalition or NATO. That's the key is that what are forces that are there, Canadian or NATO, they all depend critically on U.S. logistics, U.S. support, U.S. lift, communications facilities, medical facilities. And so if the Americans leave, either you know, there's two choices. Either A, these countries bring in their own replacements for those facilities, or they or they have to go. And, I, and most of these countries don't really have the, those things, those assets to deploy. And so the likelihood is that if the U.S. leaves, then the rest will have to leave. And another thing, as, as you noted, is that the politics of this in Iraq are sensitive. And so they may not draw up a distinction between American forces in Iraq and all foreign forces in Iraq. This whole event has activated Iraqi nationalism and politics within the Iraqi parliament that will probably not lead to any careful distinction between the Canadian uh, forces that are training in Iraq and the American forces. Uh, they're probably to kick all the foreigners out. Maybe not Iran. Iraq, the Iraqis will kick them out of, of Iraq, yes, uh, with the threat of Iranian uh, attacks also being in play. This leads to other questions, which is that besides the the NATO forces in Iraq and the Canadian forces in Iraq, there's a larger question of that if Iran were to attack the United States, what happens at NATO? What are your thoughts? Well, Yesterday, NATO held a North Atlantic Council meeting, so the Secretary General had an opportunity to talk with the the nations about the evolving situation, and the word was really restraint and de-escalation. So I think that what the Allies will work towards is the prevention of that situation, and you could see in the Secretary General's remarks that there was really no desire to entertain any kind of scenario uh, like an Article 5 scenario. And so I think that really the, the, the word is uh, don't entertain these scenarios and, and do everything that you can to de-escalate the situation. Uh, I agree. And the larger context for this is, is that NATO is a defensive alliance. And if the United States acts first, there's no obligation by any country to support the United States in that. And if the United States is attacked, there is nothing automatic about Article 5. It requires a political decision made by the members of the organization. People tend to think that Article 5 is automatically invoked by the president of the United States if, if something happens, and that's just not the way it works. If uh, the United States is attacked, there'll be a meeting, and there may not be consensus. 
just because an attack happened, it ha does not mean that it's been recognized by NATO. And it may be very hard to get NATO countries to agree to invoke Article 5 if they see this an attack on the United States being really emanating out of American uh, moves. The American position on Iran for the past three years has been very unpopular in Europe. Trying to pull out of the JCPOA, the Iran arms deal, has been very unpopular. And Trump has been threatening to sanction European companies if they don't go along with American sanctions, which again is very unpopular. And by the way, Trump is also very unpopular in Europe. And so it's very hard to imagine even in an attack upon, let's say, American forces in the region, or even a terrorist incident uh, someplace else, that they can get uh, the alliance to agree. And the, the other complication, of course, is, as I wrote uh, with Dave Oswald in our book on NATO and Afghanistan, just because countries agree to do something doesn't mean that they actually commit to doing anything, that they can opt out of whatever agreements or mission that occurs. And the problem is, well, first of all, I think it's quite unlikely unlikely that even if the U.S. gets attacked, whether it's in Iraq uh, or elsewhere, that it, it would invoke Article 5. But if Trump were to invoke Article 5, I think he would do so publicly. He would certainly mention it on Twitter. And then he would put the, the alliance in a really bad position. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that under any other circumstance, you can say, okay, well, these dynamics play out uh, within the NAC and amongst the heads of state of, of the allied countries. And, you know, if there's no support uh, on behalf of the allies, once the United States invokes Article 5, then maybe that plays out quietly, not with the U.S. <laughs> president. <laughs> and so that's the whole problem. It's the public signaling around Article 5 and, and really painting allies into a corner, which is just not good for, for NATO ultimately. Yes, uh, it's it's not good for NATO, and it, it will put a lot of pressure on the organization. But the thing is, that it's not just that the United States has domestic politics, but all the European countries and Canada have domestic politics. And that would, you know, any effort to support the United States in this would be unpopular uh, in many of these countries. Now, it turns out, as we're talking on Tuesday morning, General Vance just announced that the Canadian military is relocating some of its soldiers from Iraq to Kuwait. This is obviously to ensure their safety. But the question then is, is this the first step on the way out or is this just a temporary measure? The numbers aren't specified. This is just the first report. But this speaks to the level of uncertainty and, and how fast things are moving on the ground in the region. Yes, and I think there's going to be uh, some remarks by the U.S. president also this afternoon. So our, our podcast may soon become quite data over, over a 24-hour period. Yes, well, the key thing is, is that while we may be overcome by events in terms of what Trump says, I do think that, that we're both on this, uh, the right page and that whatever happens, NATO is not going to be opting into jumping into the fire anytime too soon. Now, and there's a number of considerations uh, that are unlikely to change, I think, as the events continue to unfold in the coming days. I mean, the, the considerations in the United States and, and Iran are such that I think we're going to continue to see escalation of, of the rhetoric. And as everyone waits to see what Iran's going to do, I think both countries have this kind of incentive to build on this rallying around the flag dynamic that we've seen in both countries, really, where, you know, bad domestic politics have been overshadowed by these events. And now both in the United States and Iran, you see leaders capitalizing on that for political gain. Yeah, although I think there's going to be limited gains in the United States because I do think that there's been enough polarization that the Democrats, people who vote Democrat, are not going to rally around the president because of this event. Uh, I think this is different than previous international crises because of, of how deeply polarized the American political system is right now. But it's a, it's a way to distract from impeachment and 
what rallying around the flag means too is using foreign diversion to try to push the attention away from domestic political issues. Yeah, and it's going to work for a little while, but the, the short attention span of the American people will kick in, and the, the impeachment hearings, where whenever it goes to the Senate, is going to realign the narrative. So this will work for the time being, but it's not going to work for much for a while, and it's certainly not going to work in November. It's it's going to be very temporary. Rally around the flag effects are very temporary and, mm-hmm. anyway, and yeah. I don't know how I don't know how well they work when you're 19 years into war. People are pretty exhausted about all this sort of stuff. Absolutely. Speaking of exhausted, I think it's time to go back and look at a more entertaining issue, which is while we were away, there was a news story about a journalist getting over 400 different messages that Canadian forces sent amongst each other in dealing with a crisis they faced uh, several years ago when the Pokemon craze was all the rage and people were trying to find Pokemon all over the country, which included military bases in Canada. Since you happen to be a Pokemon expert, I thought we'd go to you and, and talk to you about this. Well, I'm a Pokemon expert insofar as I've invested a lot in Pokemon through my sons. But my own literacy on Pokemon is actually pretty low. But what's been been funny is that this is actually an old phenomenon. The game came out in 2016. And I think we all remember seeing people wander around parks uh, trying to find the Pokemon. But that also happens on military bases. And it's just funny now the, the, the results of ATIP requests here, which do take a long time, reveal just that the confusion and bewilderment of uh, the military police as they encountered trespassers who were coming onto the bases to chase Pokemon. And so I, I got a, a real kick out of that story. And so uh, if you're doing research in this field, looking at criminal intelligence advisory involving Pokemon Go is actually a pretty fun fact and pretty funny research day. Well, I think one of the things for the military to look back on, they should probably look at all these messages too to, to get a sense of how did their different bases reacted because each one of these bases had their own reactions. And some were like, hey, can we tell Nintendo that, it's Nintendo, right? Uh, can we tell Nintendo to place the Pokemon thing to be captured, not in our intelligence cell part of our base, but could they move it to our, our war museum? Yeah, because we like to have more people visiting our war museum, and so you know, some were creative and thinking about this as a positive opportunity for uh, outreach to the Canadian public, and others just uh, found this to be a strange uh, threat to their security. And I, so I think, I think as a social scientist, it'd be interesting to compare all the different messages and find out how they responded differently to the same one kind of shock to their system. Yeah, well, military police officers ultimately had to learn how to play the game so that they could be aware of the different locations of the Pokemon infrastructure on their (laughs) military property and sort of predict where people would go when trespassing. So it's it's all pretty funny. Yeah, talk about things that you don't expect. Um, (laughs) I I just don't, can't imagine, I mean, obviously something like this is going to happen again. Somebody else will have some sort of other kind of game to play that might lead to people wandering around. Uh, And then, of course, there might be some people who use this as as cover for their own evil imaginations. There was a Chinese diplomat who wandered through an American military base over the break and got arrested, and they claimed that they were just lost. So that there is a real security threat at the same time that there's a real entertainment dynamic to this kind of thing. So they need to take it seriously, but they also need to understand that there's these weird fads that sometimes spill over into the military. Yeah, it would make for a good meme. You know, meanwhile, in Canada, military yeah. police chasing <laughs> Pokemon Go. Fair enough. Okay, before we move on to our 
Emerging Scholar interview with Rachel Schmidt, I, I do want to make a couple of announcements. The Kenning Defense and Security Network is going to have a much busier year. I'm going to be imposing on Stephanie's time much more in 2020 and all the other co-directors as we have a capstone seminar, which is we're taking the best presentations across Canada in 2019 and bringing them to Toronto, the Canadian Forces College on March 10th from 1.30 to 5 o'clock. And so if you're interested in that, uh, there'll be a registration page at the CDSN website. Since it is on site at a military base, that is the Canadian Forces College, people are going to need to give their names ahead of time. So they can't just can't randomly walk through like a Pokemon uh, searcher. <laughs> and we'll have two seminars of, of three to four presentations each where we'll have these really sharp people from across Canada present their stuff. Uh, they've been mentored by the CSN since their last presentation, and it, it should be a really good day for seeing the latest and greatest on Canadian defense and security research. The other announcement, this is more for the academics, is that we're going to have a postdoc competition where scholars across Canada, who young scholars across Canada who want to spend a year doing their research, get some money from us to be based at one of our CDSN research centers. So that's some of the things we're, we're having in, in the upcoming months. And uh, we look forward to a more active year or two of the CDSN as I continue to ask Stephanie and others to, to help me along uh, in making this thing a, a an ongoing entity and enterprise. What's the deadline, Steve, for the postdoc competition? That's a great question. I believe the deadline is February 15th. So not quite Valentine's Day, but <laughs> the day after. <laughs> You've done postdocs, haven't you? I have. I have. And they're immensely productive times. They're like sabbatical, essentially. So it's a fantastic opportunity to revise your dissertation into a book, start a few more projects, and have some publications in the pipeline when you're, re you're ready to begin your, your academic career. Fantastic. Uh, I appreciate the explanation of what these postdocs are because a lot of people don't know how the academic enterprise works. Uh, we're now going to move on to have the interview with Rachel Schmidt talking about her research project, and she's going to be one of the people uh, participating in the Capstone uh, seminar. And then our second interview is with you chatting with Irina Goldenberg about the work that you guys are doing on personnel. That's correct, and we're right now co-organizing a workshop that will be held in Ottawa on April 28th and 29th. It's a small workshop really meant to uh, examine the themes of diversity within the Department of National Defense. Uh, and here we take a pretty broad reading on diversity. We look at personal characteristics and, and uh, diversity as it's spelled out in the Employment Equity Act. We also look at professional characteristics. So looking at dynamics between civilians and military within defense, between the regular forces and reserve forces. And so when uh, you hear the expression defense team, uh, that involves uh, different professionals and different readings on diversity. So we want to have a comprehensive understanding of what that means for the Department of National Defense. And that's what we'll be discussing at the end of April in Ottawa. Fantastic. I'm really looking forward to that event. Really appreciate the work, heavy lifting you've done on the personnel theme as well as, uh, as, as well as Irina's work there too, as well as, of course, your work on all the other things that we're doing with the CDSN. All right. We'll be talking to you again in two weeks. Have a good start to the semester, Steph. Thank you. You too, Steve. My name is Rachel Schmidt, and I'm a PhD candidate at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton. Welcome to Battle Rhythm, uh, Rachel. Can you tell us a little bit about your dissertation? 
Sure. Um, so what I'm looking at primarily is disengagement from insurgent groups. Um, but what I was interested in in the literature was the lack of examination on women's motivations to disengage in particular. Most of the literature is based on male combatants and why they disengage. So I started to look at that and chose Colombia as a case study because of the high level of women combatants there. And because of the peace process, it enabled me to compare women who stayed with their groups until they were ordered to demobilize versus women who deserted their groups. And that's really a huge gap in the, in the disengagement literature is that most of that research is, is selected on the dependent variable. They only talk to deserters. Mm -hmm. Because methodologically, it's a little bit difficult to talk to people who stayed with their group if they're still active. Um, but Colombia was a perfect case in which I could actually talk to people who stayed till the end versus people who left and compare those differences um, in terms of background, in terms of identity, in terms of ideology, all those, all those things. So what's your theory? What, what, what do you, how do you explain why people leave? Well, I'm still working on that. Um, I'm still writing my chapters. But what, what I decided to focus on after going through, so I interviewed 99 ex-combatants and then 15 experts uh, in Colombia on, on DDR. Um, so it was a lot of data to go through and code and, and filter through. But what I narrowed in on is the importance of identity to to these groups. And I highlighted three what I call identity typologies. One, which is the fighter revolutionary identity. These people who identify themselves as a fighter, which is not necessarily tied to violence. It's mm. just, I'm a fighter. I fight for rights. I fight for my family. I fight for whatever. And then the other one is this insurgent feminist identity, which the women from the FARC have really embraced, whereas the deserters tended to be much more critical of the so-called gender equality of the group. Um, and then the third identity is that of campesino, uh, which is a peasant identity in Colombia. Basically this idea of victimhood that they were forced to take up arms because they're victims of the state and they were left with no other choice. And I found, I mean, I'm still writing the chapters, but what I found is people who were much more committed and self-identified strongly with these three typologies were much more likely to stay with the groups than people who were much more loosely committed to those identities, particularly the insurgent feminist one was particularly influential for women. Oh, very interesting. So is there a fourth identity for those who left or is it just a matter of weakness of identification for the three kind of identities you, you just referred to? Um, I haven't. I, so in the fighter revolutionary identity, what was interesting actually is that both groups have that, mm -hmm. um, but they interpret it in very different ways um, in terms of who they're fighting against mm -hmm. um, and in terms of the costs and benefits of membership in the group. Mm -hmm. So there's not, identity isn't the only reason that people stay or go, but it's mm -hmm. one of the primary variables that I'm examining in my dissertation. A few other really important ones are networks mm -hmm. in terms of who their friends are within the group. So what I found was that people who were very strongly self-identified as a revolutionary or as an insurgent feminist, they would say they had never heard anyone talking about wanting to leave the group. Mm -hmm. One laughed and said, well, no one would ever say that to me because they know who I am. Sure. Right. Whereas the people who deserted were much more likely to report having had many conversations with mm -hmm. different comrades in the group about wanting to leave. Mm -hmm. So there's also this network effect that depended on how you identify and who your friends are within the group. Um, and then cost benefits is another mm -hmm. is another obvious one. 
but how people interpret those cost benefits depends on that identity lens through which they see themselves. Really interesting. When this is finished, what do you plan on doing with your life? Oh, wow. Well, I'm working on that right now, actually. I just finished uh, applications for postdoc grants. Mm -hmm. Uh, I really would love to turn this into a book that people besides my committee would actually read Mm -hmm. because I really, I have so much data and so much information that can't go into the dissertation. Mm -hmm. I also have a lot of really great stories in Mm -hmm. terms of how I got to all these places that have no room in the dissertation. So next step is I really want to turn this into a book hopefully through a postdoc appointment. Mm -hmm. And then after that, I guess I'll throw my CV to the academic world and Mm-hmm. See what happens. You said that you had some weird stories about getting to where you had to go. So what's your what's your, one of the stories that you like to talk about? Well, what's a story I can tell without getting myself in trouble? Um, <laughs> no, I just what's interesting about the FARC reintegration camps is that they're they're not reintegration camps in that they're very isolated from regular Colombian society. So to get to one of the ones we went to near the Ecuadorian border, we had to take a taxi to the river and then this tiny little ferry across the river and then moto taxis through the Amazon jungle to this reincorporation camp. And when I got off the plane and I was going with my fixer to where we were staying, because the next day we were going to the FARC camp, he says to me, you don't have to worry about being mugged or robbed here because the narcos have it all under control. Well, that's always very reassuring. (laughs) Fantastic. Uh, Thank you very much, Rachel, for uh, speaking to us at Balorhythm. We wish you much success in finishing this project. Thank you. It has a lot of value added for understanding all the insurgencies in the world. Thank you very much. Okay, so I'm here with Irina Goldenberg, and we're meeting in the new Carling campus of the National Defense Headquarters. Irina Goldenberg is the co-director with me of the Military Personnel Node of the Canadian Defense and Security Network, a network we referenced several times on this podcast. And so today we've been planning out the work that's cut off for us in the next seven years. And I got to know Irina a little bit better. And I was asking questions about the type of research that one does as a defense scientist, and more specifically at uh, DGMPRA, which is the Director General Military Personnel Research and Analysis. Irina, thank you so much for being on Battle Rhythm. My pleasure. Now, am I getting this right, DGMPRA? You are getting it right. Okay. It's been long. (laughs) (laughs) Now, DGMPRA is a mouthful, and that's why we go with the acronym, but can you tell us a bit more what DGMPRA consists of? Sure. So um, it's generally sort of applied research to provide uh, empirical evidence for decision-making for the CAF and D&D, mostly with the clients being Chief of Military Personnel or MILPERS Command and the Assistant Deputy Minister of Civilian Human Resources but also the other, uh, what we call L1, so the commander of the Army or the Navy or the Air Force or Special Operations Forces. DGMPRA has kind of four directorates. That's how it's organized. So uh, different ways to slice the pie, but the way that we do it is in these across these four directorates, there's a directorate research personnel generation, which entails uh, basically everything along the gamut from kind of attraction, recruitment, selection and training, career management, human resource planning, and then at the tail end of that, retention and attrition. So sort of, you know, production part of it, if you will. That's maybe not the best word for it, but director research personnel and family support, which looks at things like conditions of service, 
um, military families, employment equity, and also the physical and psychological health of the CAC members, CAC members and their families. The directorate which uh, I'm um, the acting director for is Director Research Operational and Organizational Dynamics, and I'll bore you about the details of that in a second. And then fourthly, we have uh, Director Research Workforce Analytics, which isn't a topic per se, but supports the other three directorates in terms of a lot of times the other directorates are more sort of from a social scientific kind of background. And Director of Research Workforce Analytics looks a lot at our databases and um, does various workforce analysis and simulation and forecasting related to our workforce and various aspects of it. So together we, we kind of uh, have a very broad applied program of research to support the CAP and DND for their personnel information needs and to help them make informed decisions about uh, their programs and policies. And uh, at DGMPRA within the new campus, uh, I understand that you are overseeing a new directorate. Can That's you tell right. us about this new directorate? directorate and how it may be similar or different from your past work. Sure. So the new directorate is called Director Research Operational and Organizational Dynamics. It's a one-year assignment for me and uh, so it has a fairly broad program of research um, and generally it's three streams of research. So one is sort of traditional military kind of uh, personnel topics such as leadership, culture, and ethics. And we have uh, sub-programs of research in each of those. We look at operational effectiveness and leadership. So things like uh, human dimensions of operations, for example, and do uh, various research in that realm. And then organizational behavior and performance, which is a fairly eclectic uh, category, but subsumes things like uh, organizational effectiveness surveys related to personnel programs, and in some cases, policies and things like that, as well as sometimes uh, performance measurement kind of aspects. And, uh, and, so. and in your current role overseeing the Directorate for Organizational and Operational Analysis, mm -hmm. <laughs> not sure if I'm getting this right, but I know that you oversee over 100 different projects. Can you give us a couple of examples of projects that might be going on or certain themes or certain types of data collection and analysis strategies that you have? Sure. So, uh, for example, uh, one of our clients is defense ethics program and so every few years we administer the defense ethics survey so that survey looks at various aspects of well, ethical behavior and helps to inform that organization about how CAF members are uh, thinking in that in that in that manner and how their various training programs might work and how things might be improved and what communications are required and so on um, so that's that's uh, one kind of example. A very different type of project is human dimensions of operations. So the considerations of dimensions for operations before, during, and after deployment. And that's a really tactical kind of tool in the sense that it's not necessarily for research purposes, but it's to provide the commanding officers with an idea of how their um, unit or their uh, their group is going to be doing um, for the deployment, how well trained they are, where they need, where their strengths and weaknesses are, what might they might need in terms of support, what's happening during operations, how are they functioning, and also after deployment, how did things go, reintegration and things of that manner. And so that's a very targeted kind of research initiative in the sense that there's measurement involved, but really uh, very applied tool for commanding officers. So that's, those are a couple of examples. Very good. And, and so if I understand your role correctly, you 
look after the project project management aspect of a lot of these uh, research endeavors, but you're also a researcher in your own right, and you pursue your own research interests. Uh, I won't call those extracurricular yeah. activities, <laughs> but I've seen you involved in initiatives like Ergomas. I know there was a conference in Lisbon, Portugal last summer. Can you give us a sense of your own research profile as a defense scientist? Sure. So in addition to the management of uh, Drood, this directorate, now I've spent quite a number of years doing recruitment and retention research. So one element is um, I had been the section head for the recruitment and retention research section at DGMPRA. And so that's kind of, uh, as the name kind of conveys, a lot of research related to recruitment and retention. There are many aspects of that, both cap-wide and then more specific. For example, in terms of retention, some of the things that we would do there or uh, the kind of research I would do is cap-wide research. Um, so things like the retention survey to inform the retention strategy overall, like what are the drive, main drivers of uh, retention and attrition for um, the Canadian Armed Forces. Or we would do a lot more targeted kind of research. So for example, uh, let's say retention in a specific occupation or a specific location. Examples of that would be, well, first of all, retention or attrition varies a great deal by occupation. Um, so some occupations have fairly low attrition rates, whereas some have very high attrition rates, often because they're very competitive in the labor market. Mm -hmm. So for example, uh, retention of pilots is, might be a challenge, and so we might do a retention study based on that. Similarly, there could be retention issues related to location. So of course, um, the cap is uh, mm -hmm. Canada-wide, and um, uh, some locations are remote, or um, and so on, and uh, it can have challenges just because of that. So, for example, um, we recently completed a retention study in um, Four Wing Cold Lake. I mean, to me, I thought we don't really need a retention study necessarily because it's cold. <laughs> leaving, but uh, nonetheless, me and my uh, colleague went up to uh, to the wing there in January, mm -hmm. um, and. Uh, for example, did focus groups with the people that are posted there and looked at the unique challenges. And it was actually a very multifaceted kind of information that we could then provide to the Air Force and to the commander of Cold Lake about some of the pragmatic things that can be done to um, to help support and retain people at Cold, mm. Cold Lake. Did that so, come up, though, when you asked uh, people what uh, might influence your decision to stay or leave? Did people say the cold. <laughs> The cold had to do with it and the dark, <laughs> the cold and the dark. It was a lot more multifaceted than that. So mm -hmm. uh, the general sense is if you're outdoorsy and, uh, you know, like fishing and hunting and things like that, that might be actually a dream location for right. you. If you're a really urban person, um, that might, you know, and depending on where you are in life as well, mm -hmm. uh, that could have an impact and many other things that we've uncovered that we'll have to save for another battle rhythm. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And what about the research that you present at venues like Ergomas? And that might be another acronym you have to spell out for us. Yeah, sure. So Ergomas is the European Research Group for Military and Society. That took me a second. Well done. <laughs> so um, I'm the Secretary General of Ergomas, and I think I'm in my seventh year of that, so probably wow. soon time to move on. But uh, it's Ergomas, despite the name that it starts with European, and it did start as a European organization. It's truly international, so there's definitely members in Asia and uh, South America and all over. And it's comprised of 14 
in working groups all related to various aspects of military sciences, um, more military human sciences, I would say, but uh, things like, well, recruitment and retention is one of the working groups, gender in the military, violence in the military, military profession, public opinion, um, mass media in the military. So that gives you a flavor of the kinds of things that veterans in society, things like that. So there's quite a few 14 working groups, as I say, and so there's a biannual conference between the conferences, the different working groups have their own activities and initiatives. So collaborative projects, maybe workshops outside of the conference structure that we all meet at together, whole organization, publications, and uh, things like that. So yeah, it's a really good organization. And I am also uh, the leader of a working group, uh, the Total Defense Workforce Working Group. And I understand that a Total Defense Workforce is a bit of a pet project or a favorite topic of yours. Can you go into some detail as to what that term means and where your research is guiding you? Sure. Well, total defense force, I would conceptualize as kind of uh, all the different components. There may be different ways to conceptualize it, but the way I'm looking at it is from the personnel perspective. So the different uh, workforces or groups of personnel that we have working. And from that, I mean the regular forces, the reserves, defense civilians or defense public servants like myself who work for their various um, respective defense organizations, as well as civilian contractors, which are increasingly being, um, you know, employed in defense uh, mandates and goals. I would say my initial interest in this started from um, more looking at the collaboration and integration between military and civilian personnel. So maybe not the full total (laughs) defense workforce, but the partial, like the Mm -hmm. kind of uh, general cruder um, distinctions. Uh, But uh, that's something that has interested me for quite a few years. Mm -hmm. I was at one point posted uh, as a defense scientist. Uh, This is an aside that we have a posting cycle, actually, similar to a military model, which is very unique for public servants. But I was posted into the client group ADM HR Civ. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, so we were looking at various personnel issues in that organization. And some of them were the classic things of how to recruit enough, um, you know, procurement officers or something like that. But what I learned very quickly was that many of their issues related to the cross section between military and civilian personnel. So it wasn't the same issues that public servants in various other departments um, were facing, but rather some very unique issues by virtue of working with uh, in collaboration with military personnel. Both pros and cons, but basically you could not understand civil- defense civilians without understanding the context that they work with their military counterparts. And so that was the initiation of my mm-hmm. interest in that. So I wanted to learn more about that aspect to help my client, ADMHR Civ, in um, their personnel management and their programs and policies that they were developing for defense civilians in Canada, D&D mm-hmm. employees, basically. And I reached out to our TTCP partners, the Technical Cooperation Panel, mm-hmm. and what the response I got was kind of a nil response, but really very interesting in that, no, we don't have anything, but we would really, you know, love it if you if you do come across any information, please Please share it with us. And so I thought that that was uh, a little bit telling as well, that there was like a paucity of research. So we always think about sort of mil-civ relations as either how the public perceives the military or maybe how the military and politicians kind of interact or uh, perhaps, you know, on operations, how civilian workforce, uh, sorry, civilian citizens and the host population and the military mm-hmm. interact. But we don't mm-hmm. look at mil-civ relations in our own backyard, mm-hmm. which is that 
kind of workforce dynamics. And so that's since then has evolved into uh, both a national and international program of research on this topic. And as I learned more about that, I realized, well, to really understand the topic, we have to talk about total defense and have further incorporated that aspect uh, into, into some of my research interests. And I appreciate how that perspective has informed some of the work that we're uh, doing together as part of the CDSN. So we're organizing a workshop in April, and whereas my previous work has focused on diversity and gender in the armed forces, you bring that lens of the total defense force, which I think enables us to look at diversity more broadly speaking, both in terms of the variety of professional identities that people have, regular force, reservists, civilian, military, uh, but also diversity in terms of demographic identifiers, which we traditionally identify as gender, sexual orientation, visible minorities, indigenous communities, etc. So I really like this broader conception of diversity when we think about the work that is carried out by the defense community. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I I think that um, there are some common issues that actually apply to both. So really understanding some of those aspects helped inform some of those other aspects of things like identity, perceptions of fairness, uh, and various aspects like that whether it's, you know, the traditional types of diversity, if you will, or these more kind of occupational or organizational types of diversity, those issues come to to bear on those. And I wouldn't mind adding as well that there's, I, I think that when you do start to understand those things, you also look at uh, the way that those aspects interact. And mm. um, when we were chatting earlier, I had given you the example of, for example, civilian workforces tend to be on average, older. They tend to, on average, have more females than military workforces, which are sort of the young, fit, male kind of workforce. And so it's a mil-civ aspect, which is the organizational, maybe, occupational identity overlaid over that traditional gender diversity that does come to factor in as well. So it's a little bit the cross-section between the two. So stereotypically saying, like, the, the you know, maybe the military colonel talking to a female, uh, you know, civilian subordinate. So there's both the milsive aspect that you can, you know, read into as well as the um, the gender aspect, if you will. Mm-hmm. So you must self-identify yeah. as a sociologist at heart. <laughs> well, I'm actually, that's a whole other thing in this organization, <laughs> DGMPRA, which is very multidisciplinary. And mm-hmm. actually, I'm a psychologist, mm-hmm. um, but I work with a lot of sociologists. And now I don't even know what my discipline is in the sense that I think I'm kind of multidisciplinary and uh, have, a, you know, hopefully take from the best of all of the various social science disciplines and just apply them as required. Yeah, in my in my schooling, if you will, there was a strong quantitative background. So I definitely come with a lot of uh, statistical uh, analyses and things like that. But uh, as I've worked at D&D for the past 15 years, I've come to greatly appreciate the value of qualitative research and how uh, informative that can be and how rich that can be and so <laughs> and and then you go but, to the International yeah. Sociology Association conference That's I like right. that I, I wish yeah. that uh, in political science uh, which is my discipline yeah. we were bolder in crossing these disciplinary boundaries. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think there's value in all and we're all kind of stronger together when we look at things through different lenses. And in some of my our sort of work groups, we definitely have um, people from the different disciplines to be able to provide the different perspectives on the things we're studying and makes it 
I think, more a deeper understanding of the phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so speaking of, of training and backgrounds, when I was enrolling in a PhD program several years ago, I did not know jobs like yours existed. Mm-hmm. So for the prospective or new graduate students out there, how mm-hmm. would you define what you do and maybe the variety of careers that there might be in research within the Department of National Defense? Sure. I mean, to be honest, I had no idea jobs like this uh, existed either. And then when I was coming towards graduation, looked at the jobs.gc.ca, which is the government <laughs> jobs website, um, I happened to see an ad for this and uh, fortuitously applied. And 15 years later, I'm fairly uh, happy here. But yeah, so it's definitely, you know, not something necessarily that we think about in academia. I think there are a lot of opportunities in government at large. I cannot speak to all of those opportunities, but I can certainly speak to opportunities uh, for defense scientists, maybe at Defense Research and Development Canada, but perhaps more specifically at DGMPRA. Mm-hmm. How would I describe it? I, it has some similarities to the academia in the sense that uh, definitely it's empirical research, it's rigorous, it's peer reviewed, writing is a big part of things, and uh, publication is our bread and butter as well in many aspects. So that's one thing. However, it's uh, probably uh, different in the applied sense that it's very applied research. So not that other research can't be applied for, but perhaps it's just the matter of which is prioritized. The application might be more important than, or the organizational needs and pressing questions might be more the drivers versus maybe personal interests or what what passion you have, which again has pros and cons, but uh, it's very applied research. So generally we um, get the research requirements from our clients. So in our case, the main client would be uh, Military Personnel Command, as well as uh, ADM, HR, CIV, and the other um, commanders that deal with the personnel aspects. Pains like some of the things I've talked about, like recruitment and retention, career management, training, and so on, fairness, increasing diversity, the the things that are pressing to them, and we do research in that vein to inform, sort of to help them understand uh, the issues better, and then obviously to therefore inform recommendations in an empirical, evidence-based manner. I think the big distinction is the applied aspect of it. Perhaps the main products or the things that we deliver are first and foremost information to D&D in the CAF, whether it's in briefings or scientific internal reports and things Mm -hmm. like that. And secondarily, um, you know, me and all of my colleagues are also very much involved in external collaborations and publications and journals Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. uh, chapters, conferences, and so on. So we definitely want to keep cutting edge and and still uh, consider ourselves to be scientists and be informed by the wider scientific community. But it's walking that line of the internal applied client needs and ourselves as academic professionals. Okay, so that's a perfect way to jump on to the final question, which is about your dream research. So some of your (laughs) dream research is, I suppose, part of that external realm, which you mentioned, so more curiosity-based research that you do through various organizations like Ergomas. And some of your research is uh, client-driven, which you do within the Department of National Mm -hmm. Defense. So if I ask you about your dream project... 
what might that be? Right. So uh, just to preface, and this isn't necessarily because my boss or bosses might be listening, but I <laughs> hope to sort of have a good happy marriage between the two in the sense that, I mean, I don't see them as completely, you know, unrelated. And I hope to leverage what I do here to extend in, in an external or international kind of forum and conversely bring, you know, some of the collaborative work or external work, if you will, to inform some of the things that we do here because there's lots of common um, issues, whether it's, um, you know, in terms of employment across different employee employment aspects or across different NATO nations or what have you. So <laughs> um, I guess with that being said, I had mentioned my my interest in military-civilian mm-hmm. kind of uh, collaboration, and that was, uh, became, it was really never part of my core work topic or sub-organization that I've been working at, but it's always been a very large kind of pet project, including a fairly ambitious uh, five-year NATO research task mm-hmm. group, with, which uh, I co-chaired and has recently been finalized. And now we're planning a lecture series to sort of uh, disseminate some of that work. So I guess maybe uh, something that I would love to have the opportunity to do further is to extend that work to the total defense force um, perspective and look at some of the other aspects and how the components of regular force, reservists, uh, defense civilians, and as well defense contractors kind of work together towards the same mandate, but in their different respective roles. What are the barriers to their integration and collaboration? What are some of the things that can facilitate the optimal functioning and integration of those kinds of workforces? So I think there's a, a lot there. I think it's an area which is under-examined and is really, really um, has a lot of impact on our both operational and organizational effectiveness. So it's really important uh, for us. And I'll have a front row seat since we'll be <laughs> working together for yeah, the next I'll seven years. Yeah, maybe some of the uh, aspects of it. Well, that's great. I think we're off to a great start, and it's been really nice to spend the day with you, Irina, and I look forward for what's to come. Feel free to look up Irina Goldenberg's bio on our website, and let me end by thanking you, Irina, for being on Battle Rhythm. Thank you, Steph. Times like these bring up both the best and the worst in the media coverage of international relations. We have people on the ground in tough places asking good questions. We've had some incredible coverage of the decision-making within the White House. But on the other hand, we have a couple of problems with the way the media covers events like these. There's always the tendency first to invoke World War III because, hey, that's exciting. Let's have a World War III. That's not going to happen. Second, there's a tendency to bring back Decision makers of the past who've been utterly discredited, or journalists who've been utterly discredited. So when you see Paul Wolfowitz, who worked in the Bush administration, or Judy Miller, who published stuff or wrote stuff for the New York Times that proved to be false about the threat of weapons of mass destruction in 2002-2003, it drives me crazy to see them on TV. They were so wrong then, why should we listen to them now? It's not as if they've gotten any wiser. The other challenge is that we see a lot of people on TV or doing radio spots talking about this stuff as if they know much about Iran or Iraq. And this is something that I've fallen victim to because I've been on TV talking about the alliance politics of this, talking about the U.S. foreign policy of this, talking about the Canadian politics of this. But sometimes the anchors don't follow their scripts and they ask questions about Iranian decision making or Iraqi decision making. 
And I need to learn to have better discipline about trying not to speculate on that stuff because I know that I know not, that this is not what I am thinking about. This is not what I've researched. That's not what I've, I understand. So as you follow the coverage of the events in the Middle East in particular, but around the world, the first few questions you should ask yourself are, are these discredited people? If so, change the channel. The second thing is, is this academic or other expert actually expert on this stuff? I will try to have discipline and stick to my lanes. I sometimes fail in that. I just wish that the media would follow the scripts and actually ask the questions they said that they would ask of me and maybe of other folks as well. We'd like to hear your questions and your comments. And so please send them to us at Twitter address at CDSNRCDS or email them to CDSN.RCDS at Outlook.com. Thank you.